2: We saw some real rawness come out on social media and um, it was amongst people within our communities and my heart hurt over that. The fighting and the divisiveness that was occurring and, and uh, you know, being played out there in such a public way and feelings were so raw. And that happens, you know, to all of us and in particular, you know, when we're younger and when we're closer to situations as, as we're trying to um, deal with things. And that just really hurt me because I see people that I know know each other and, you know, who are in opposition on this, like, really black or white opposition. And so I started making some posts that were really about trying to encourage people to be kind and compassionate. At the end of the day, we still have each other and we need to have each other.
3: That's Lori Campbell speaking as a community leader and as an auntie. It's in response to the reaction over the revelations made about Buffy St. Marie. The CBC's Fifth Estate cast doubts about the iconic musician's Indigenous identity. The report was a bombshell, and it hit the Indigenous community hard.
2: Feelings were going to be hurt and trust was going to be broken and people were going to start choosing sides
0: it felt quite painful it felt like all of us were implicated in this deception
1: you're triggered there's you know our traumas our histories of generations of being lied to and manipulated and it it hurt a month
3: later and we're still sorting out those difficult feelings but those with connections to indigenous communities Say the way through is to listen to one another because we're stronger together. Danse Anine, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Dear Child.
1: We all had our time to share and say what we had to say, and I think that's part of the healing process. No matter which side of the fence we sit on, we can't just all feel the same about it, and we should be able to share with each other in a healthy way like family.
3: Shanine Robinson-Dajarlais is the Indigenous Music Development Coordinator at Manitoba Music. In her industry, Indigenous music makers are coming together to talk about the pain and the solutions to the pretendian problem in the music world. Lori Campbell is using her role at the University of Regina and as a community auntie to keep dialogue open and counter the negative comments and conversations that divide.
2: I was struggling to see in my mind how at the next community feast, how people were going to be in relation with each other.
3: And Michelle Sisa is a journalist who has been part of identity investigations in the past but now says she is increasingly uncomfortable with the way the media and the world delivers and digests Pretendian investigations while ignoring the bigger issues.
0: You know, I just hope that people don't lose interest once there's no longer sort of a famous figure at the center of it, that they stay engaged with these issues, that they, you know, do the tougher work of learning what Indigenous identity and citizenship really mean.
3: Today, we make space for grief. To mourn what Buffy meant in the Indigenous community. To learn why stories like this do so much harm. And find out where the Indigenous-led solutions lie to find our way forward. A month has passed since the investigation into Buffy St. Marie rocked the Indigenous community. In the end, the report labeled her a pretendian. That term is used to describe people whose claims of Indigenous identity have been found false or built on distant family lineage. The fifth published on Friday, October 27th. But Indigenous people were already talking about it. That's because three days earlier, an Anishinaabe writer and documentary filmmaker with knowledge of the investigation sent a tweet out into the world. In it, he said... There just may be a cosmic shift in the Indigenous universe. According to rumour, CBC's Fifth Estate would be taking a close look at Buffy St. Marie's Indigenous ancestry. If true, black will be white, up will be down. That tweet was the start of an uproar within the Indigenous community. Many struggled to find the words to express just how hard this all is. One of the voices that would rise above the rumble was Laurie Campbell's. She wrote an article outlining the harm the report and the revelations have had. Laurie is the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina. She is Nehiyawak Métis, a member of Montreal Lake Cree Nation, and a 60s Scoop survivor. Laurie, welcome back to Unreserved. Thank you, Rosanna, for having me on. Now, um... I'd like you to take us a bit into a timeline, starting when you first heard the news. You know, like many of us, you had your first inkling of what was coming on the Tuesday before the Fifth Estate story. Tell me about the moment you read that tweet from Drew Hayden Taylor.
2: You know, I'm not really on uh, X much anymore, but uh, probably like you, like my all of a sudden I was just flooded with messages because people saw it. I uh, didn't know exactly what was coming. I I felt a bit like the tweet also was um, already sort of instigating some divisiveness, like with the black will be white, up will be down. It wasn't, there was no shade of gray in there um, for coming together. And just by the bombardment of messages about this tweet that had gone out, um, I just knew it was going to hit hard and uh, that feelings were going to be hurt and um trust was going to be broken um and people were going to start choosing sides and that just really concerned me because we're small like we're a small community and we need to stay together there's enough like, sort of out there in the world that works against us so we need to have each other
3: let's add some context to that because i uh, you know non indigenous people other countries may not quite understand why this is such a big deal for indigenous people what did buffy mean to to the community
2: You know, even to me personally, you know, in my home office, I have um, a copy like an original copy of she was on the cover of the Winnipeg Free Press magazine in the 60s. I have it like framed and in my in my house. Um, I remember her as a child uh, on Sesame Street. And as a 60 scoop survivor, I was, you know, living at that time with a non indigenous family in rural Saskatchewan, we never saw ourselves represented. And I just remember like, you know, who is this uh, indigenous woman on Sesame Street? And And it was so inspiring to to see myself represented. And I bought like the stamp collection for like all my nibblings and sent them out, you know, when it came out. And so personally, I, you know, went through uh, challenges of like, is the support or or the conditions that made me feel inspired by her, are those negative now? Like, do they go away? I've come to the conclusion that they don't, you know, 10 year old me that was inspired, I'm still inspired. That still led and contributed to where I am today but um i knew here in the community because uh there's familial relationships with uh, buffy st marie that i didn't think that would quite be understood by the broader public uh what those familial relationships mean and uh just felt that it was going to be really difficult yeah
3: yeah and in the bigger uh frame she's done so many things accomplished so many um, milestones and has uh, contributed to the indigenous community in in many ways. So having that questioned, of course, was was really harmful and devastating to yeah. the community. I'm going to use the word devastating because I was devastated. Yeah. I was absolutely crushed, and heartbroken by by the revelations. Right, and and we have
2: so few. Again, people like of that stature to look up to, right? Like in the music industry, in in the arts industry, um, in leadership even, that have made it to those mainstream, highest levels, national, international. And so, you know, a younger version of me, uh, when I was still struggling with my own identity, right? And being 60 Scoop and coming back to it in my early 20s and reconnecting, like, I might have felt like, well, okay, to be successful as an indigenous person, you actually have to be non-indigenous, pretending to be indigenous and therefore, what's the point uh, in trying? and and I can see where a 20 year old me really would have felt really overwhelmed and devastated in that way and really struggled. You know, a 51 year old me um, had those sort of same thoughts and ideas, but, you know, I'm able to work through it maybe a little bit more quicker. And I, I drew on aunties around me to have conversations. Um, well, at the same time, auntie-ing, as, as I call it, for uh, those who were uh, struggling and, and uh, messaging me about mm, it. Of
3: course. Um, and we do want to get into what that means in, in the Indigenous worldview. But in terms of your work at the University of Regina, how significant was Buffy uh, to that work?
2: Yeah, well, I mean... You know, again, we're like in in the province that uh, Buffy has familial ties in uh, through traditional adoption, and she's been at our university several times and at First Nations University just across the way. You know, our university is, you know, also one of the universities that's provided an honorary doctorate to Buffy St. Marie uh, among numerous universities across the country. And so we do have some considerations to take from an institutional perspective, But one thing my colleagues have uh, really come to understand is I keep reminding them, you know, that although I'm in this, you know, leadership role here at the university, when these things happen, I'm Indigenous too, and I'm living the experience while I'm trying to lead the university through it. And so sometimes institutions and my colleagues, I think we don't give maybe as quick a response as the public wants, because we need a moment to process as Indigenous people you know, sometimes I'll, I'll take care of a community phone call ahead of an institutional one because, you know, that's where I'm needed
3: in moments like this. Mm-hmm. And who did you turn to as you, as you began to sort through this, this mess?
2: You know some of our senior uh, Indigenous uh, matriarchs in the community, but uh, I, w- I was lucky enough that my auntie Maria was also coming through town, Maria Campbell, on the Thursday, and and uh, we'd gone up for dinner and had a brief conversation, and you know, and and like great wonderful aunties do, they they uh, provide some thoughts and some guidance, but they, you know, they never give you a concrete answer, you know, and so I certainly never got a, yes, this is true. No, it's not true. It was more of a conversation about how to work through it and come to a, you know, an understanding and how to
3: be available for for others, mm. you know, and, and to help others through this. Mm. Of course, Maria Campbell being the, the Métis matriarch, Author, knowledge holder of of uh, Métis culture and and um, history. What is the role of auntie in, in particular in times like this?
2: You know, aunties are you know those people that we turn to. I, I I love my aunties dearly, and they love me dearly. Some of them I'm a little terrified of as well, <laughs> but it's in a kind, loving way. And uh, the ones that I turn to the most are the ones who are the ones who will also tell me if I'm off track and to smarten up in a kind and loving way. And I, and I just, I think that's just really important and it's been really helpful for me in my life. And I feel really grateful to have had, uh, and to continue to have so many aunties. And of course they're not necessarily like even by blood, you know, auntie Maria is, is, by blood, but there's other people who have played that role and continue to play that role in my life. And then there's uh, you know, the nibblings, the, the nieces, nephews, nibblings, uh, Others in my life that are younger than me that uh, also call me auntie and, mm. and uh, that's very cool. I think
3: <laughs> it is very cool. Um, now you had also said that you you were being auntied, and then by the end of the week you were auntying. Let's unpack that a little bit more. The because a lot of this uh, happened online in real time, reaction, the response. Um, the posting in terms of taking sides in terms of black and white, up is down. How did this social media uproar affect the Indigenous community?
2: People were turning on each other and I mm-hmm. couldn't, I was struggling to see in my mind how at the next community feast or community event, how people were going to be in relation with each other because some really raw angry hurt uh thoughts were put out there in a way in ways that were really oppositional and I just keep thinking like we're a small community and many of our communities are small even our urban communities in large centers so when there's an event when there's something that we come together for like everybody's there and um I started to think about like how can we as, you know, being an auntie is, like I said, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. And so what role can I play in ensuring that, uh, you know, at coming up events, even in, in particular, that I'm that I'm there, that I'm um, trying to help uh, keep those relationships together to keep those uh, younger ones together and, and not to let this divide and, and put
3: big gaps between us. Absolutely. Um, the Fifth Estate Investigation was published on the Friday, um, which meant we all headed into our weekend grappling with this fallout. Tell me about your trip to, to Rona. I understand there's a moment that really stood out for you.
2: Yeah, you know, I uh, was struggling with this like everybody else. I was working through my emotions. I had to make an errand in the city and uh You know, a a relatively random person that I really don't know uh, well, guy, you know, non-Indigenous guy, like yells over to me, hey, so like, how about that Buffy thing? And my partner was there. And so she, you know, sort of took over the conversation and I just kind of walked away. But, you know, when I got in the car, I, I just I felt like we have things to work through as Indigenous peoples. And I just felt like that was just like really inappropriate. I said, you know, the only thing I want to hear from white people right now is like a message saying like, hey, we've heard this news. I hope you're doing okay. I'm thinking of you. And to be honest, I got many texts and messages from white friends who just literally said something like that mm-hmm. and uh, that's all i needed for them right now and uh you know the rest of it was you know just me working through within indigenous community and within my peer group and aunties and and those around me but um yeah it was just a, it was just a little shocking and a little intrusive and and uh insensitive and harmful really in in the way uh in similar ways that the whole release of the story was
3: mm-hmm. now within days of the fifth Estates state's investigation um, you wrote you also wrote an article so you took it out of social media you took it out of conversations with indigenous people privately and you wrote an article for the conversation tell me what what you said in that article
2: when i was asked to write the article i said you know it may not be the article that you're looking for but if i'm going to write an article this is what it's going to be on You know, and so I spoke with them and they supported me to write what I felt was important and what I wanted to get out there, which um, I appreciate as an Indigenous person, right? I was writing it for Indigenous people uh, directly and indirectly, and I just wanted to draw attention to some pieces that were left out of the fifth estate uh, report. Uh, One really an understanding of what traditional adoption is versus having, you know, being biological indigenous. And, you know, I had been out with my aunties, some of my aunties from my birth family uh, on the Sunday evening and my cousins. And I said, you know, like I would assume maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume, you know, we've been in relationship for nearly 30 years now if I were to find out tomorrow that I was actually wrong and mistaken, and I wasn't Indigenous, I would assume that we would still be in an anti-niece relationship because we've been in relationship like that for 30 years. And, and, you know, and they said, well, yes, of course, you know, so my biology has no change, even if I found out, you know, I wasn't actually their niece, but was still Indigenous, that still wouldn't change that relationship. And so that was one thing that I wanted to try and, shed some light on in uh, the broader community. Uh, And then the other thing was really, you know, my work is around reconciliation, uh, the calls to action and and, uh, moving organizations and institutions forward and holding them accountable. And I just really felt like the way the CBC went about releasing this information was more about the sensationalization having a big startling effect on the public. And I'm not sure if they felt like they were going to be like, yeah, great job. Everybody was going to be cheering for them, but that's kind of what it felt like to me. But what they didn't do in my mind was take into consideration the sensationalization over it versus a negative impact it would have on indigenous peoples. I'm not saying this story shouldn't be out there um, or even that CBC couldn't have done it. But uh, the care and attention to the impact that it had, did not meet in my mind, you know, the calls to action that spoke about, you know, accountability and responsibility by media. Mm -hmm. And, And then dropping it on a Friday night, you know, Friday nights, like, already a challenging time for lots of people, you know, to get through the weekend and to get back to school and those sorts of things. So dropping something traumatic on a Friday night, when, you know, we're, we're not gathering on campus, we're not uh close to each other in, in some of, you know, our most healthy ways. And so that I felt like was not showing the care and concern either.
3: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have, you know, pictures of Buffy, you have the stamps, you have a framed article of her, uh, as many of us do. Um We have lots of her music. I grew up with that music. I grew up watching her on Sesame Street. So this is really it feels like a, a death. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just put that out there right now because it, it really felt like that. I, I went off social media. I called my aunties, you know, uh, to work through that grief. What do we do with that now? What do we do with our with our mementos? What do we do with the music? What do we do with that memory? How do we move through this? For me,
2: I have not come to the place of removing items from my home office where I have them displayed. You know, I will take a moment to look at them and and uh, go through them. I, you know, need to be in the right space to do that. And I don't feel like I have been quite there yet to take that time to go through that. I probably uh, will take them down and, and uh, um, but hang on to them. And I think As the uh, shock value is is wearing down a bit, uh, you know, I will try to do my part to, you know, bring people together and keep people together and help them navigate through maybe some of the harsh things that might have been said to one another.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, lots of reaction, as we've been, we've been discussing, uh, continuing to, to fall, to roll out, to, to reverberate through our communities. Um, but oddly, uh, many of our leadership has not weighed in or uh, expressed an opinion. So what do we need to, to, to hear from our leaders at times like this?
2: Uh, Well, first and foremost, I would, you know, I would like to be hearing, uh, you know, more of our leaders speak out about uh, just our communities coming together Mm -hmm. to support one another through this, just recognizing, you know, that all the feelings are valid, and, uh, you know, not allow in that divisiveness that is, it's not our, it's not our way, right? You know, part of seeing some of this rawness expressed and playing out on social media, part of the hurt is, is that You know, it comes under this gaze of settlers watching, you know, this play out in real time. And, uh, yeah, I just wish that wasn't happening. Mm.
3: Me too. But uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you think about it, uh, these stories will continue to be reported about, you know, so-called pretendians. What do you think the responsibility is for media as they go forward with this? You know, I'm not...
2: (sighs) I don't know. It's made me question whether, you know, media is really like the place to do that. Like from a financial perspective, if CBC had this much money to invest on Indigenous issues, I don't know that this is where I would have chosen that to go. You know, there was a couple of scholars, Indigenous leaders who uh, do work in this area around identity fraud. They could have maybe continued that research and had that information and media could have maybe reported on it. but I feel like there's a whole lot of other amazing wonderful stories that are you know celebrating indigenous peoples and and work and research and uh, things that uh, I would have rather seen mm. um I think about that there needs to be more thought into whatever stories are coming out. Is this story going to, cause harm to indigenous peoples or trauma and really sort of gauge and think about that a little bit. Yeah. more. I don't want to be surprised as an indigenous person because media is letting out this secretive story about, you know, somebody who I've, you know, looked up to my whole life.
3: And what do you hope Canadians will know or do better next time we're faced with a story like this and they run into us at Rona?
2: I hope that they have a better idea of, you know, what, where is their place to make judgment calls or to be asking us about things that impact our lives and and just, you know, be a little bit more considerate of recognizing the depth of the impact that something like this can have. You know, this was, there was only one Buffy, you know, we we don't have a dozen other decades long indigenous uh, superstar musicians out there. You know, there was only one. And now that's gone.
3: Lori, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Lori Campbell is Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina. She is Naheyawak Métis and a member of Montreal Lake Cree Nation. This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family members stolen
0: and murdered then missing.
1: I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo.
0: It's such a mystery, such an impossible
1: task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Dearchild. The accusation against Buffy is the latest in a growing list of so-called pretendian stories. It is by far the most high-profile investigation. But for Michelle Sisa, the revelations about Buffy landed differently. Michelle is no stranger to what she calls the genre of pretending investigations. Last year, she wrote an article for Maclean's magazine investigating claims made by artist Gina Adams, former professor at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. Michelle is a member of the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 6 and the editor of Indigenous led Conservation Coverage for the Narwhal. Michelle, welcome to Unreserved.
0: Hi, Rosanna. Thank you for having me. In a recent article you wrote for
3: The Walrus, you say you are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with these stories. What What's making you uncomfortable?
0: You know, I think these are stories that get a lot of attention from the Indigenous community, obviously, but also from non-Indigenous readers uh, or, or audiences. And to me, there's something that's a little bit disquieting maybe about how eager people are for these stories. You know, they're they're very sensational. Uh, They're very scandalous. I see, you know, huge reactions to them. And that feels really out of proportion with other serious issues that impact the Indigenous community. So I think there's, there's something there about how, you know, it's maybe easier for non-Indigenous audiences to engage with these like scandals about pretendians than the other issues that impact Indigenous people. And I worry about that. But more broadly, I see all of these stories of Indigenous identity fraud as connected to the ways, you know, institutions and, and non-Indigenous, uh, I guess, structures have made it possible for people to profit by claiming an Indigenous identity. and And I worry that targeting people one at a time, if they're a sufficiently public figure, that an investigation into them seems like, you know, something that an audience would be interested in. I don't know that that's getting at the fundamental problem of how and why there are so many pretendians uh, and and how deeply they're embedded into many of our institutions, you know, in the arts, in in education and government. Uh, and I'm a lot more concerned about that. How big a problem do you think pretendians are? Well, I I think that, you know, GNTA has written a report for the University of Saskatchewan and in it she said that she estimated probably one quarter of all people in universities who claim to be indigenous are misrepresenting that heritage. And I think that that's probably pretty accurate. You know, I think there's in the last few years, uh, certainly since the truth and reconciliation commission recommended, you know, that institutions try and indigenize and, and recruit more indigenous people. A lot of places have tried to hire indigenous staff or faculty or, you know, administrators or recruit indigenous students, for instance, and they've used self-identification where all you really had to do was check a box. And I think that really opened the floodgates to a lot of these kinds of unchecked claims. And so I think it is a really widespread problem. I think we've seen from these stories that there's a it feels like an infinite supply of pretendians. and I don't see, you know, any signs of these investigations slowing down or or disappearing. I don't think we've gotten to the root of the problem yet. Mm. What do you think the root of
3: the problem is? You mentioned uh, that basically there's box checking going on everywhere. Where do you think it's mostly happening?
0: I think in any sector that has uh, tried to indigenize by recruiting a lot of indigenous people through these methods. So that's pretty broad. But for instance, the investigation I did was about universities, and they really pushed to hire indigenous faculty and recruit indigenous students. So. They, they were using these similar self-identification measures and did a lot of hiring really quickly. And you know, now, years later, realizing maybe they made some mistakes. I think many federal and provincial government agencies did the same thing. They've had preferential hiring for Indigenous people, uh, a lot of arts grants organizations like Canada Council uh, or research grants, all of them have prioritized, you know, ensuring that there's indigenous perspectives, which sounds like something everyone can get on board with, but they haven't been necessarily very rigorous in ensuring that they're really working with indigenous people, that, it, that those opportunities that are supposed to correct for this, you know, historic exclusion and marginalization are actually accomplishing what they're meant to accomplish, which is ensuring that indigenous people are really represented.
3: What should these institutions and, you know, government funders and uh, arts institutions and and universities, how should they be doing that hiring? Uh, How vigorous should they be?
0: I think, you know, five years ago, it would have been reasonable to assume that this was like a a negligible problem. And it would be really reasonable if people, you know, who are in charge of this hiring or, or awarding these opportunities, we're taking people on faith. But now I think it's, it's impossible to ignore the fact that this is a problem everywhere. And so that should go through the community that this indigenous person says to be from, they should be talking to First Nations, they should be, you know, making sure people have the community connections they've claimed. And I, I, You know, I don't want to say that should be led necessarily by the institutions themselves. And I don't necessarily want to see a process where people have to just show a status card, which is another federally regulated tool and not necessarily something that's always coming from the Indigenous community itself. but. I think that the indigenous communities need to be a part of these conversations, you know, I think this has happened in part because indigenous identity has become something that isn't really situated in community it's it's a checkbox by a a settler institution that's kind of decontextualized that's separated from the relationships that make indigenous identity meaningful. And by by separating it out like that, um, by turning it into a kind of credential or a qualification for an opportunity, it's lost a lot of meaning. What does Indigenous identity mean? What does citizenship in a First Nation mean? And I would say that if you don't know how to answer those questions, if you don't know how to talk about Indigenous identity, maybe you're not really the person who should be deciding who gets these opportunities.
3: Um, what would that look like in, in, in a practical sense? I mean, you know, if I go into a university, what, should, what kinds of things should I have to produce or prove that, I, that I'm a Cree person from Opie and Cree Nation?
0: I mean, I think that, you know, the most simple thing would be to produce something that that shows you have those connections. So, I mean, I do have a status card, but I know not everybody does. So it could also be, you know, contacting someone who is a member of that nation or who has a relationship there to demonstrate that you have the connections you've claimed. And I think being honest about what those are, you know, if you're not a member, if you have ancestry, but you're a non-status person, being honest about that or just ensuring that people are, Being truthful, I guess, about the strength of their connections, like we've also seen in recent years, a lot of people claiming to be Métis on the basis of a really distant connection that doesn't reflect, you know, the Métis Nation's uh, definition or homelands. And, And so I think there has to be sort of clarity about what community people are claiming to come from and what that connection really means. Mm hmm. One community
3: that uh, has been really harmed um, by this that that I've been seeing is the 60s scoop um, generations, Mm -hmm. because that was that was a story that she had claimed. Um, What about them? How do we bring them into the circle and make sure they're not being excluded by this?
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that's you know, that's one of the greatest harms of these frauds is there are a lot of people who have been separated from their communities through the 60s scoop, through adoption, through, you know, the really harmful ongoing process of removing children from homes that we see through the foster care system. I think that this verification has to take place when we're talking about an opportunity, you know, something that is specifically for Indigenous people but in Indigenous spaces where people are trying to learn and reconnect, I see that work as beginning with the community. You know, I think most people are trying to reconnect with their family and with their nations, and I think where we see a lot of the harm is when when somebody is sort of moving past that community connection or that family connection straight to the opportunity. So they they try and take something for an Indigenous person before they even understand who they are and where they come from. But I think that there does need to be awareness that a lot of Indigenous. Survivors of the sixty scoop are are grappling with the the pain that Buffy claimed that she experienced, which is that they've they've been separated from their families, that they may not know who they are, where they come from, and there needs to be, I think, a lot of empathy and acceptance of of those people on their journey as they, you know, as they move through that.
3: So we certainly have, you know, some ideas in terms of how we move forward and make sure that these opportunities are actually going to the people that they are meant for. But how do we get that, those ideas, make them reality? How, who's responsible for holding these institutions to account? Is it the institution? Is it indigenous people? Is it government? Is it
0: law? I would hope some combination of all of those. I mean, I think, you know, it's a big burden on the Indigenous community, which is a small community in the grand uh, scheme of of Canada's much larger non-Indigenous population to, to be holding all these institutions accountable, to be the ones who are always bringing these stories forward. I mean, I think when we look at stories of pretendians, often the concerns were raised by Indigenous people. And um, I often think of Daryl LaRue who says, you know, this isn't an indigenous problem, it's a non-indigenous problem. It comes from the non-indigenous community making these false claims. And so it can't be something just for us to sort out for non-indigenous people, right? Like Mm non-indigenous people should be, if they see, you know, a family member suddenly making one of these claims, like I hope they're calling them in, it can happen on that level. But on a bigger level, You know, if if we're talking about a public institution spending public funds that have been designated for indigenous people and they're not using those funds appropriately, if they're permitting fraud to happen in that system, that is a serious problem. They need to be addressing it the way I hope they would address any other kind of fraud. You know, if someone were practicing as a doctor and they hadn't gone to medical school, (laughs) we would expect the medical profession to take that really seriously. Governments and other public institutions need to be ensuring that there's there's rigor and and accountability in the systems that they've set up. And then I think, you know, non-indigenous people need to learn a little bit about our identities and who we are and how our how our nations work. I think there's a real discomfort sometimes among non-indigenous people who don't want to ask too many questions, you know, who Who don't really know the difference between, for instance, what it means to be Metis versus a mixed race, you know, Cree and settler person? They're not very comfortable. They're not very informed. And I think in that uncertainty and in that doubt and in that hesitation to, to learn is where a lot of this fraud flourishes because people just aren't literate. They're not informed about our histories or our contemporary reality. And so there is, you know, a lot of opportunity to exploit that ignorance.
3: In your MacLean's article, you had uh, written some people still prefer a fake Indian to a real one. What did you mean by that?
0: I think that real Indians can be very inconvenient for settler institutions. You know, I think that there's a there's a real conflict often between what's best for Indigenous nations and what's best for Canada as a settler state. We see that in conflicts um, like Wet'suwet'en, we see it in Fairy Creek here in BC. And we often see it when indigenous people's politics or realities are uncomfortable for these institutions to deal with. Um, You know, it's not enough just to hire an indigenous person and hope that that solves the problem of racism or discrimination. And what I think we can see sometimes is, you know, a white person pretending to be indigenous I think they offer something really valuable to these institutions, which is the appearance of diversifying, of including Indigenous voices, but really they don't have to change anything about what they're doing. They don't have to change the culture because they're not actually bringing in an Indigenous perspective. They're bringing in a white person in costume. And that that's very convenient for an institution that's not really ready to make radical changes to how they operate, um, to how they teach, to how they, you know, how they carry out all of their administrative functions, it's really a lot harder to change that culture, I think. And so I still think that if a non-Indigenous group of people is evaluating two candidates and one is a really radical political Indigenous person who's deeply engaged with their community, who's committed to uh, Indigenous sovereignty, and the other one is somebody who ticks all their boxes and has sort of a distant speculative relationship to being Indigenous, but is otherwise a comfortable and familiar figure. Uh, I know which one of those two people is going to get the job.
3: Do you think that something positive could uh, come out of this this whole Buffy mess?
0: Oh, I think so. I mean, I I think, you know, any any story like this that does draw attention to the problem of Indigenous identity fraud is ultimately something that I hope can bring people to thinking about those bigger issues. And, you know, I just hope that people don't lose interest once there's no longer sort of a famous figure at the center of it, that they stay engaged with these issues, that they, you know, do the tougher work of learning what Indigenous identity and citizenship really mean. Um, That's a harder task than absorbing a headline and a story, but it's the more important work. And so I just hope people stay stay committed and and care about what happens in our communities beyond (laughs) beyond just these uh big splashy scandals
3: michelle thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today
0: thank you so much for having me on rosanna
3: michelle cisa is the editor of indigenous led conservation coverage for the narwhal she is a member of muskeg lake Cree nation in treaty six This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Dearchild. Like many, I grew up watching Buffy St. Marie, admired her strength, listened to her music, and cheered on her every win. It was, in my mind, a win for us all. For this episode, we didn't want to take a side or make space for more anger and division. Instead, we want to make space for healing without doing more harm to our community because the headlines and the questions continue. Among them, whether her many accolades and awards should be returned from music to honorary doctorates. Shanine Robinson-Dajarle has a front row seat to the tidal wave impact of so-called pretendians in the music industry. She's a Cree and Gitsan mother, Wife, music lover, and former journalist. And she's the Indigenous Music Development Coordinator at Manitoba Music, a nonprofit organization that promotes, supports, and advocates for music in this province. Shanine, welcome to Unreserved.
1: Dante Rosanna, my dear friend,
3: how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good. Shanine, what was the moment you realized just how much the investigation into Buffy was going to hit musicians?
1: Well, I think I got wind of something forthcoming a few days before. I prepared myself. I talked with my coworkers and management at Manitoba Music. I said, I think something's coming. I don't know exactly how that's going to look, but we need to be prepared. And then I went to my parents' home, actually, to visit for dinner. They didn't know anything was going on, and I told my mom and dad, who are elders, and my dad, who knows Buffy very well. And I said, something's coming up in the next couple of days. I just want you to be prepared in case it's some bad news. I had mentally prepared, I guess, myself for something that was going to hit our community hard. And, you know, I just wanted to really be there as a support system for our artists and for the many elders and survivors that I knew this could possibly affect.
3: Mm. It's been a month since the investigation came out. How do you feel about the revelations now?
1: Well, it took a few days. I was thankful at the time when the the actual story was aired. I was actually in Steinbach, Manitoba, a partnership that we do with our organization and the Manitoba Arts Network. So I was there with my good friend and colleague, Ron Dehead and one of our artists from out east, um, Adrian Sutherland, was there as one of the showcasing artists. We had... J.C. Campbell, who actually lives in that community, came out one evening and some emerging Indigenous artists as well. So I went back to my room on a break and I watched it and I was like, wow. It takes a lot to absorb that kind of information. You don't know what to think. Especially you and I, we come from a background, a history of journalism, so we put our thinking caps on in a in a way to see all sides of it, to, to take it all in, not jump to conclusions. I needed to absorb that information. So it took a couple of days. I was thankful that we were together with those artists and industry to use each other as a soundboard, to share, to just be there to support each other because it was very um, emotional. You know, a lot of things come, you're triggered. There's, you know, our traumas, our histories of generations of being, you know, lied to and manipulated and it, it hurt. You know and that's that's how I felt. I felt confused, I felt angry, I felt hurt, I felt you know a lot of a number of emotions for me personally, but because of the role that I play in this community, in this work that I do, I also wanted to be strong and supportive of our elders. My parents, I know were very upset, and mm. um you know I'm not going to name names, but some sixty scoop survivors reached out to me. Some very big names in the music industry and artist community reached out to see how I felt. Are you okay? We are there to help each other, to be, is everybody okay? Are you doing all right? Mm. I don't know how to feel, Shanine. I need some help. So I had to be a support system for some people as well. Yeah, Right down to my nine-year-old son, who is very involved in music and was asking, well, what's going on, Musham? Like, I know this music. He had just introduced a Buffy St. marie song to his school over the school microphone that week, introducing Indigenous artists as part of Truth and Reconciliation, right? So it affects generations of people, no matter which way we look at it.
3: Mm. You were having conversations with uh, Indigenous musicians in your role at Manitoba Music. What kind of conversations have you been having with them?
1: What I've found so far is that it's very respectful, very healthy, and very supportive. At Manitoba Music, Indigenous Music, this has been a conversation as far as identity goes and what is our role when it comes to identity? What is our policy? What is our mandate, right? Mm. So we've been wanting to have a meeting with our Indigenous Music Steering Committee for several, several months now. It's just hard because I want to do this in a traditional way where we're face-to-face doing business the way we have to traditionally together in a circle. Mm -hmm. So, but Try doing that in the summer with touring Indigenous artists that are all over North America. We're try- we've been trying to find a time for quite, a- quite some time. This has really reminded us that we have to make that happen pretty quick. So we do have something coming up in the new year where the Indigenous Advisory Committee um, of Manitoba Music's Indigenous Music Department will be meeting in the new year. That's 10 of us. But nationally, the Indigenous Music Office, they're holding four um, meetings to talk about this. And I sat in on one the other day, and it was very, very well done, very respectful, and so many various opinions, so many different nations, so many different protocols from across this country, and we all had our time to share and say what we had to say, and I think that's part of the healing process. No matter which side of the fence we sit on, we can't just all feel the same about it, and we should be able to share with each other in a healthy way like family. Mm -hmm.
3: Without uh, breaking any confidences, what are some of the things that you heard from, from that circle?
1: Um, anger, pain, hurt. Um, there's some that want to have accolades taken back or given back. Um, there's other points of view where they're you know want DNA tests. Other people that are saying that's not our way as traditional people. So there's so many different various opinions that we're seeing all across the country that I've been reading, that I've been hearing, that I've been um, chatting with with many artists.
3: Yeah. How do you think we should have this conversation? It's a really tough conversation. We've seen online the the anger and the hurt and uh, the division that this, this issue has, uh, has caused. So how, in your role as auntie of Manitoba music and in the Indigenous music scene, are going to guide people through that?
1: Well, I just think that we need, to, like any other kind of trauma that we've faced as Indigenous people, is that we need to be given time, we need to be given space, And I think the media plays a role in that, too, not to, you know, pick at it. Like, I need an answer now. I need a clip. I need to tell the story. Like, I wasn't ready to talk about it until I decided I wanted to talk to you about it. Some are angry. Some are going to lash out. Some are upset and want to cry about it and just need space. And, you know, Natanis, Pyapot, we both know is... Buffy's niece, who's one of my dear friends and sisters that we worked together for many years at APTN. I know that she's facing a lot of lateral violence because of her standing beside her auntie, and that's her choice. She should not be ridiculed and um, abused by our people because of that choice she has. She has that right as an Indigenous woman to stand with who she wants to as family. This is a really big subject. It's a very important subject. But I also feel that it's taken away from really, really important realities that we're seeing every day across this country. Look at Winnipeg. The cold air is on the way. And we've got our brothers and sisters on the street who don't know what they're eating tonight or where they're sleeping tonight. We have daily overdoses from drugs in this city and across the country. And we have children being taken every day. You know, we some of us as mothers don't even know how we're going to feed our kids next week because we're not making enough. Some of my friends don't make enough money, even though they're working mothers. There's big, major issues. But people need to be respectful of each other's differences and differences of opinion and just love each other either way. Because like I said, this is taking a lot of attention and time and energy away from things that actually matter, that we actually have control over.
3: Mm-hmm. Let's turn the conversation to to what you can do in your role as part of the Indigenous Steering Committee. Uh, you mentioned that you're going to have a, a meeting with them in the coming weeks to discuss this investigation and what to do about particularly Indigenous identity fraud in the music industry. What do you want to accomplish with that meeting?
1: Well, The steering committee guides me in my role. So I need to hear from them what they want. I want to hopefully come up with some concrete solutions and a mandate for Manitoba music. It's a huge, massive conversation. Like, what is that going to look like? I don't know. I anticipate that it's going to include things like, you know how do we identify an Indigenous person? Is self-identification acceptable any longer? What does that mean when you are identifying as a First Nation, Inuit, or Métis person? Does that mean that we need a status card, or is that not the right way? Because is that how we, you know, recognize ourselves as, you know, sovereign people? Or... Do we have to have referrals or an application? Like a lot of that's a colonial, like imposed system as well, right? So mm. we're going to have to discuss how that's going to look, and um, the steering committee has to guide that as far as policy and mandate and a vision and mission statement of, of indigenous music at Manitoba Music.
3: Mm. What What are the rules currently in place, if if any?
1: Well, there's no like anything that anybody has to sign or prove or submit but some of the for instance Métis participants that join Manitoba Music have without even being asked or have sent like here's my status card or here's my Métis proof of identity but mostly out of good conscience and you know the goodness of um, our word for many years it's just been well this is who I am I'm from this community I'm First Nation from, say, Pemmican Cree Nation, Cross Lake Manitoba. These are my, this is my lineage, this is my family. And it used to be as easy as that. Is that easy anymore? I don't know. I think that, in my personal opinion, outside of work, I don't think it's enough to just say this is who we are, because clearly we're seeing across the board in in major centres of education, of, of policy, of politics and music, that there's a really, like, a lot of people that have benefited saying they are one of us and they are not.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is your hope for Indigenous musicians as we continue to navigate these questions around identity?
1: Well, like I work with Indigenous artists right from emerging to mid-level to tour-ready international touring artists. First Nation, Métis, Inuit, we're different shades, we're different personalities, we're different types of people. And I think that what we need to continue to do is strive for our God-given talent. We, there's so much talent in this community, and I find there's also, you know, some egos there, and there's some lateral violence within that too. And we need to put a stop to that because it's holding us back, just like any other colonial system. We've got our healthcare, justice, our, you know, political systems, our, our child welfare systems. It's jumping through hoops. It's a colonial system that we must learn to navigate. The music industry is no different. Mm. So we need to be collectively. On the same page whether even if we disagree here and there i think that we need to be taking the lead be respectful i pray that our artists use their voices and their talent to do good for themselves to hold their space in a good way and also walk alongside some of our emerging artists and take them where they're going and not have competition that's my dream not to compete with one another there's space for all of us to to do well you know and to hold that space and also not be afraid to speak up when there's somebody in our space that doesn't belong there.
3: Shanine, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today.
1: Agasane, sister, thank you. Shanine robinson Jarle is the
3: Indigenous Music Development Coordinator at Manitoba Music. She is currently based in Winnipeg. Buffy St. Marie continues to refute the allegations, but most recently, claims of her birth on Piapot First Nation and her Cree ancestry were removed from her website. And the chief of Piapot now says she should take a DNA test. The Piapot family continues to stand by her. That's all our time today. You can find more on our website at cbc.ca/slash unreserved. Download our podcast from the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your pods. This episode was produced. By Kim Kasher, Laura Bone steubing Rhiannon Johnson, Zoe Tennant, and Aisha Smith-Belgaba. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna, Dearchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty One Territory, I go like say.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to CBC.ca/podcasts.